from the beginning. When Jesus is asked about the legality of divorce in today's gospel reading, he answers by pointing us back to the beginning, quoting from Genesis, which is given to us as our first reading today. Now you may not realize, but if you read the first chapters of Genesis, there are actually two accounts of the creation of man. The first account tells us that God made man in his image, male and female, he created them. Now the word man, I should point out, is of Germanic origin, and it simply means a human person, male or female. Although in modern English we tend to use the word to mean the male specifically. But its true meaning includes both sexes, and so Genesis says that God made man as male and female, both in the image of God. In the second creation account, God makes the male first. But this doesn't mean that the male is of higher dignity. In fact, if you look at the creation account, God makes the lower forms of life first, and then he makes the higher forms of life. So if we were going to read anything into the order of creation, it would be that woman is of a higher order than man. But that's not true either. This is why the first creation account takes such pains to point out to us that both male and female are made together and both made in the image of God. Neither one is of a higher dignity than the other. And that's still taught in the second creation account, but in a different way. This account, our reading today, picks up with chapter 2, verse 18, after God has already made Adam and he's placed him in the Garden of Eden. And God commands Adam to cultivate and to care for all the animals and all the plants in the garden which Adam has given name to. But then God says, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a suitable partner for him. Not a slave, not a servant, and not a master, but a partner. And then God creates Eve out of Adam's rib. Now, the actual Hebrew text doesn't reference a rib bone in particular. The word used just refers to the side of the body. In other words, woman is not made from man's feet to be tread upon, nor is she made from man's head to rule over him, but she's made from his side to be equal to him, to be his partner. And the fact that Eve is created from Adam tells us that she is made of the same substance as him. Adam and Eve have the same nature. They're literally made from the same stuff. So unlike the plants and animals that are lower in dignity than Adam, Eve is substantially the same as him. And this is why, even though Adam had the authority by God to grant names to all of the animals, he doesn't give Eve her name. Instead, when he sees Eve, he says, This one, at last, is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She is like me. 
And since they're made from the same flesh, it's fitting that God should call them to be united in flesh. Our reading from Genesis ends with the same verse that Jesus quotes in today's gospel, that a man should cling to his wife and the two of them become one flesh. And in this way, their mutual love for one another will be fruitful. God commands them to be fruitful and to multiply, just as Jesus instructs us in today's gospel to welcome the children and do not prevent them. It's worth noting here that the word contraception literally means against the beginning. And it's aptly named because not only does it act against the beginning of human life, but it goes against the beginning of the marital vocation itself, which has its origins here in paradise. In the beginning, in the beginning of creation before the fall, man enjoyed harmony in all of his relationships. He related rightly to that which was above him, his God. He related rightly to all that was below him, the earth, the plants, the animals. And he also related rightly to what was equal to him, his partner and his helpmate. The last thing that Genesis tells us about Adam and Eve's relationship before the fall is this. The man and his wife were both naked and yet felt no shame. Adam and Eve felt no shame. They felt no need to hide their bodies from one another. They felt no shame toward their own bodies because they related rightly within, with themselves, within their own person. And they felt no lustful shame toward one another's bodies because they related rightly to each other. They didn't see the other as an object to use for personal pleasure, but as a person to love. They saw in one another a person that God made for their own sake, beloved by the Father, not a means to an end. Naked here doesn't just mean without clothing. It means exposed. It means vulnerable. Adam and Eve stood exposed before the other with nothing hidden in between them because there was no need. They knew each other fully. They saw each other naked and not ashamed because they were without sin. But then what happened? After that first sin, immediately, Adam and Eve hid their nakedness. They hid from one another by fashioning garments out of fig leaves. And then they hid from God. They hid from God in the garden. They had never done anything like this before. They had never felt a need. They had never felt compelled to hide any part of themselves. So why hide now? Their hiding from one another and from God is symbolic of their broken relationships. Their relationship with God was broken by their sin, and they were ashamed, and so they hid from God. But by breaking that primary relationship with God, our first relationship, they damaged all of their other relationships, including their relationship with each other.
Think about it. Male and female, we are made in the image of God. And if our relationship with God is broken, we're no longer able to relate rightly to that image of God that's standing right before us. So Adam and Eve covered themselves because they no longer knew how to relate to one another in a proper way. They looked at each other now with hearts that for the first time knew evil as well as good, and they were ashamed. Now that's just the first part of the story. We know how the story ends, don't we? God has sent us a new Adam to undo the sin of our first parents. Jesus Christ, his only son, died for us on the cross for the sake of our redemption. He forgives our sins and he reconciles us to the Father, restoring us to a right relationship with God. And by restoring us to a right relationship with God, he also gives us the capacity to restore this right relationship to each other, especially the relationship between man and woman. This is why when he is asked whether it's legal for a man to divorce his wife, as Moses allowed, Jesus points back before Moses and says, from the beginning, it was not so. Moses permitted divorce, Jesus tells the Pharisees, because of the hardness of your hearts. Now the scriptures refer to hearts as hard or stony when they're closed off from God's grace. And after the fall, our hearts were hard. They were dead. We were incapable of relating rightly with one another because we were not in right relationship with God. So for that reason, divorce, which is the ending of a relationship, could be permitted. It could be allowed. It wasn't considered something good, but it was tolerated because of our fallen, hardened condition. But Jesus gives us living hearts, bleeding hearts, made of flesh and blood, hearts made for compassion and made for mercy. And so Christians are called to live out our marital vocation the way it was in the beginning. This is why the church teaches that divorce can be permitted for unbaptized people, but marriage between two baptized Christians is for life. It cannot be broken. And that's not because the husband and wife are somehow made immune from mistakes or acting in sinful or selfish ways, but it's because they have put on Christ, and Christ is the heart of that relationship. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. And what God has joined together, no human being must separate. Those of us born again in Christ are called to a more perfect union in our marriages. And it doesn't happen automatically, and it's certainly not easy. Just like we're still capable of damaging our relationship with God through our sin, we can damage our marital relationships by our sinful behavior. But just like we're called to repent of our sins and seek God's forgiveness in the sacrament of confession, married couples are called to seek forgiveness from each other. And not only seek forgiveness, but to grant it 
with mercy and with compassion the way that God forgives us. Jesus will never abandon his divine bride, the church, because she is also his body. They are one in the same. They are one flesh. And so Christian husbands and wives should never abandon their spouse with whom they have become one flesh. This requires great trust. It requires perseverance. And it requires mercy. But most of all, it requires love. Christ-like love for one another. A selfless love. A self-sacrificial love. A love that loves the other for their own sake. Now I want to make an important clarification before I move on, and that is, while divorce is a tragedy, in and of itself, simply being divorced is not a sin. There are many Catholic couples whose marriages end in divorce who mistakenly think that their divorce has separated them from communion with the church. That's not true. While there may have been sinful actions leading up to the divorce and a need for confession and reconciliation, simply being divorced is not a mortal sin. And this is especially important for those who have been abandoned by their spouse to understand. Someone else's sin cannot separate you from God or the church. What Christ speaks of in today's gospel is divorce and remarriage. He says, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. The reason why is that while a divorce may be recognized civilly, it may be recognized by the law, true divorce between two validly married, baptized Christians isn't possible. You can't undo a sacramental marriage any more than you can undo a baptism or undo confirmation. I knew a woman once who had been abandoned by her husband. Um, By the time I met her, it was probably 15 or 20 years. And she was a Lutheran, but she had a more Catholic understanding of marriage than anyone I have ever met. Her husband, it was a sad story, it was stereotypical, He had run off with a secretary from his office that was half of his age, and uh, they ran off to Florida and started a new life together. And even though she was divorced, she still wore her wedding ring. She never took it off. And she told me one day, she says, my husband is a jerk. She used more colorful language than that, but I'm editing it. She says, my husband is a real jerk, but he's my husband. And just because he is unfaithful to his vows doesn't mean I'm going to be unfaithful to mine. And that's the most holy attitude toward marriage that I have ever seen because it's the most like God. God has that same attitude toward us. Even when we are unfaithful to him, he will never be unfaithful to us. So that woman will always be an example for me of how even someone in the most dire circumstances who has been abandoned by their spouse for decades can achieve holiness by faithfully living out their marital vocation. This kind of total commitment, this 
covenant relationship that God has with us is what the vocation of marriage is all about. That's why Christ elevated it to a sacrament. Because by living their love in that sort of faithful covenant with one another, husband and wife make Christ present in the world. Now I've been speaking about marriage in particular because this is the immediate context of Christ's teaching in our gospel. But the call for us to be in right relationship with the people of the opposite sex is not limited to the vocation of marriage. All of us, all of us, married or not, are called to chastity. And that word gets misunderstood quite a bit. Most people think chastity simply means refraining from sexual activity outside of marriage. But it means more than that. The virtue of chastity means the successful integration of sexuality within a person. Integration. Not compartmentalization, but integration. And that touches on all of our relationships. Integration comes from the same root word as integrity. We are called to be people of integrity when it comes to how we relate to other people who are of the same sex as we are and especially when it comes to relating to those of the opposite sex. That's true if you're married, that's true if you're single, if you're celibate, if you're a male, if you're a female, if you're young, if you're old. We are all called to practice chastity in our relationships. And that does not happen easily. It does not come easily to us, brothers and sisters, because we still have a fallen nature. We have been redeemed in Christ, yes, but that relationship between man and woman is still broken because we are still living with the natural consequences of the fall. We deal with them each and every day. And if you don't think the relationship between men and women is broken, look at the news. You see evidence of it on a daily basis, on an hourly basis. Or better yet, look into your own hearts. If you're humble enough, and if you're not blinded by pride, if you look into your heart, you will find brokenness there regarding how you relate to those of the opposite gender. Some of that brokenness will be caused by you and your sins. And some of that brokenness will be caused by other people. But it will be there. I feel confident in saying that everyone here could have a better relationship with members of the opposite sex. I also feel confident in saying that everyone here could have a better relationship with God. We have a lot of room for improvement in both of those areas, and the two of them are related. They are related. Men and women are made in the image of God, but we image God in complementary ways. That means when you look at a person of the opposite sex, you need to consider that God is showing himself to you through this person in a particular way that complements his own image within you. We are gifts to one another. We are gifts And if we fail to recognize each other as gifts, then we fail to recognize the giver. 
God made man and woman to be in communion with each other and with him, to be an image of the Holy Trinity. And we need healing in those relationships. And the only one who can heal those relationships is Christ. We need to fall in love with Christ. We need to let him show us how to love, how to love our spouse rightly, how to love our sisters and brothers the way that he loves them for their own sake, not for any selfish gain. Then and only then will man and woman live in harmony with each other and with God without shame, without hiding, as it was in the beginning.